This is CliffCentral.com. Welcome to the Renegade Report. I'm Jonathan. And uh, Ramon is present. And for all those who don't know, we're actually on Instagram now at something, Renegade underscore report, I think. Um, so <laughs> don't even I, know the handle. No, I don't. Instagram won't let you share onto like other social media stuff. So just search Renegade Report and we actually got like videos and much more interesting things. You can see our ugly mugs for yourself instead of just listening to our sexy voices. Absolutely. And... This week, we are going to be doing an American-themed show. Uh, you'll be hearing this uh, just after, I think, Trump finishes his visit to uh, NATO, Europe, uh, well, NATO in Europe, and, and then uh, he'll be meeting the Queen. Apparently, he's quite excited about that because he, his, his mother was a big fan. Of the, of the Queen, yes. yes. And meeting Putin, I think. Isn't he meeting Putin? Yeah, he's meeting Putin week? somewhere in between. Uh, apparently, everyone's very worried because he's having a one-on-one meeting with Putin. So, obviously, uh, you know, if you're uh, on the, the persuasion that Trump is the worst thing to happen to, to Earth, then he's obviously getting a whole bunch of briefcases of cash from Putin. Yeah, because he really needs it. The billionaire from New York really needs, you know, $10,000 in cash from a suitcase. Yeah, well, you need to, you need to, you need to pick your narrative, Ramon. You can either have he's a failed businessman or he's a billionaire. Just make a decision. I mean, you know, this is the problem, isn't a f- it? A failed businessman doesn't come back from like three bankruptcies. Yeah, well, there's a, there's a lot to discuss about Trump. Um, and obviously all the insanity that surrounds the reaction to Trump more, more than anything else. Uh, And so, yeah, that's what we're going to be discussing today. Our guest this week is uh, current Breitbart editor Joel Pollack. He uh, formerly was a speechwriter for uh, the leader of the the DA, the former leader of the DA, Tony Leon, and also got a master's in Jewish studies from UCT. Um, We're chatting to him uh, from California today, I believe. Joel, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. I'm actually usually in California. This morning I'm in Chicago. Oh, okay. family. Perfect. And you can hear my kids running around in the background, so I hope that's not too distracting. But we're in Chicago on a glorious summer morning here. You have children. It's, it's terrible. You, you must be upsetting <laughs> people on the left daily. Right, right. Well, you know, they're, they're great kids, and they are very happy to be at their grand's house. So they'll be, they'll be present in the background. I hope you can still hear me. Uh, yeah, well, it adds text to Joel. Uh, not to worry about it. We're not uh, we're not that professional yet. <laughs> so, um, so Joel, interesting about you is you were actually born here and moved to the states uh, very young, as I recall, and then you came back um, in the late nineties, somewhere on there, uh, early two thousand. Right. So, I was born in nineteen seventy seven in Johannesburg, and my parents, who had just completed medical school and my father had just completed his military service was looking for opportunities overseas for a lot of the same reasons that people were looking at the time the unstable political situation desire to uh, find a more stable more promising environment in which to raise a family and also he was very interested in transplantation which was a cutting-edge field at the time and although south africa was one of the pioneers the best work was being done abroad. So he was looking for opportunities in the UK, in Israel, the United States, and 
then in that process, my mother became pregnant. So when they returned to South Africa, they waited for me to be born. And uh, literally eight weeks later, they came to Chicago where my father had received a job at the University of Illinois at Chicago. And he started the organ transplantation, excuse me, the liver transplantation program there. Wow, that's intensive stuff. And yeah, yeah. So I grew up in the suburbs of Chicago and went to college at Harvard, then had a fellowship to study in South Africa. And South Africa became fascinating to me. I'd say starting in high school, really, we didn't have much connection with the place when I was younger, except for relatives and the occasional visits to see grandparents and that sort of thing. Um, But it really became fascinating to me in high school. We started reading South African literature. There's the um, political changes in the country had started, and so we were watching those with great interest. It it really was something Americans took a uh, deep interest in. And if you you were paying attention closely, you could really follow events in South Africa from a distance uh, to a great degree. So I began to follow events, and... In college, I did a little bit of studying about South Africa and African history and applied for a fellowship to study in South Africa under the uh, Rotary Foundation Ambassadorial Scholarship. And I came to South Africa very, very excited, not just about the changes in the country, but at that time, I was also excited from a left-wing perspective. I mean, I had uh, developed some very strong left-wing ideas while I was at university, and South Africa was implementing everything I believed in huh. and everything I hoped the United States would do. It's, it's funny you picked those ideas up at a university. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, uh, you know, my political ideas at that time were really formed at university. The, the most exciting courses were the ones taught by left-wing professors. They were the ones engaging not just in abstract political theory, not just in economic calculations, but actually in the world. Mm. And the activism of my professors was intoxicating. And I, I took a lot of classes with Cornell West, for example. Um, I did a lot of political work. I, I got into political organizing, volunteered for Democrats and that sort of thing, uh, along with doing other extracurricular activities like journalism. I began to develop an interest in writing and travel and that sort of thing. And South Africa seemed like an excellent place to experience the kind of political environment that I hoped would come to the United States. And I arrived in South Africa with an open mind, really looking to see how these policies worked in practice. And it was the experience of seeing them in practice that began to cause me to question my political convictions. I think because I was a true believer that I wanted to see the results of the policy, that when the results were different, I was forced to return to my original assumptions. I was forced to look back at the ideas themselves and turn them over and examine them and see if they really were as correct as I'd once believed them to be. And it took a long time, but I eventually began to shift in a more conservative direction. I worked at the DA, which at the time, I guess, would describe itself as centrist, maybe slightly center left. I think it's moved left since then, but I worked there and that was also an interesting exposure to new ideas. Tony Leon, who I was very fortunate to work for, is a voracious reader with a really inquisitive mind, extremely well-read, and had a really cogent critique of statism and socialism. So working with him was really an intense exposure to the criticisms of the ideas that I had come to South Africa with. And so when I returned to the United States, 
I had had this experience that wasn't a complete transformation, but it certainly opened my mind to reconsidering the way I looked at the world. And when I started law school at Harvard, that's when I really began to cement my ideas in a conservative direction and, and come to some convictions um, that were based in conservative philosophy. And having gone through Harvard once as a liberal, you know, in, in the left-wing sense, I suppose, not, not in the South African sense of liberal, yeah. um, but more, I, I guess, in the socialist sense, um, having gone through Harvard on the left, I now went through Harvard on the right, and uh, that was also a fascinating experience. So, Joel, I mean, you call yourself a conservative. So what are the, the, the core ideals of conservatism in 2018? Because um, if you had to look at it traditionally, it was about uh, precedent, tradition, uh, relatively you know, closed borders, fiscal responsibility, social illiberalism to some degree. Um, so as a conservative in 2018, what do you think is conservative versus what used to be conservative? Has there been an evolution in your mind? Right. Well, if you go back 200 years, conservatism meant monarchy. I mean, conservatism meant preserving the divine right of kings and, and patriarchy. And that has, of course, changed. The United States has a version of conservatism which shares only one thing in common with classical conservatism, which is its respect for tradition. But the tradition that American conservatism seeks to uphold is a tradition of individual liberty and limited government and separation of powers. And that, in a South African sense, would be described as liberalism. So American conservatism is fundamentally liberal in, in the classical sense and in yes. the sense in which South Africans um, mean the term. The, the one difference is that American conservatism is more committed to traditional ideas of religion and family. That's not to say that it's a monolithic view among American conservatives uh, that one must bring religion into public life, but American conservatism as a set of ideas is more explicit about its commitment to tradition in a religious and cultural sense. There is a very powerful conservative streak in South African life, but not so much in South African politics. And, and by that, I mean issues of uh, social conscience, like the death penalty, like abortion, like gay marriage, uh, even like spanking children, which isn't really a political issue in this country, but is in South Africa or has been in the recent past. Those are issues on which the vast majority of South Africans, particularly black South Africans, have, have very conservative traditional views. Those views are not represented in South African politics. And even the quote-unquote conservative party, which isn't really conservative, the, the DA, allows its members an open vote on those issues rather than actually taking a position which is different to the left-wing position that the ANC espouses. So people have been wondering for a long time when that social conservatism that is very much a part of South African life will come into South African politics. I think it's a very interesting question to consider. Uh, but in any case, that's one thing that distinguishes American conservatism from South African conservatism. I happen to have more libertarian beliefs in terms of politics, I have socially conservative beliefs in my personal life, but I do believe that as regards public life and the state, that there's very little the state can do to legislate these things. The best it can do is to protect people's freedom to express their 
religious beliefs or their social and cultural values. Mm, with the non-aggression principle, obviously. Right. Um, okay, so it's interesting because a lot of the criticism of the U.S., especially currently, is that it's very bipartisan, that uh, you're either Republican or you're Democrat, and these two things are very far apart from each other, and and they don't agree on anything, which I, I don't think is entirely true at all. But but um, that's a criticism of the U.S. In South Africa, we've got the reverse problem. Uh, pretty much every single one of our major parties uh, sits on the left of the political spectrum for what that's worth. And so we don't really have any um, sort of this partisan issue because, as you mentioned, uh, the DA doesn't really disagree with the ANC. And if they do, they allow half their members to agree and half their members to disagree. The ANC has a very left-wing view on most things. Um, the EFF, obviously, so far left um, that uh, certain members who are going to become congresswomen in New York uh, would fit in well t with their party. Um, so uh, do you think, uh, from, given your experience in the country, um, that we might get to a point where a principled party that stands on a lot of these issues might actually gain a lot of support? You mean in South Africa? Yeah, in South Africa. Well, you have a challenge in South Africa, which is that some of these left-wing policies are actually enshrined in the South African constitution. Because of the constitution's guarantee of socioeconomic rights, mm -hmm. in effect, South Africa has committed itself to a form of statism. And so it's very difficult to have a debate in South Africa about alternative ways to provide the goods that people want, like health care, like education and so on, mm. because the constitution, the framework within which those debates must take place, has already committed the country to using the state as the vehicle for delivering those goods, whereas it's not clear that the state is the best way to, to deliver those goods. And in fact, much of the evidence suggests the state is a very poor vehicle for delivering some of those things. So that's the constraint that South Africa unfortunately finds itself in, and, and it's not clear to me how South Africa will escape from that. I know the DA, then the DP, uh, debated the socioeconomic provisions of the Constitution extensively. I know that DP was opposed to those being included in the Constitution, but decided to support the Constitution anyway. That was probably the right thing to do for political reasons. But those socioeconomic rights essentially commit the state to what I would consider a suboptimal uh, way of managing some of the most important questions facing the country. And, you know, a better approach might have been the Irish Constitution, which has some of the same ideas in the Constitution, but it has them as goals rather than as rights. I think yeah. they call them directed principles. So these are the principles toward which we're going to work, but it doesn't mean the state has to provide those things. Yeah, and in, in, uh, so in, South African South African political debate is truncated partly because of the South African Constitution. And in fact, all those things you mention, um, healthcare, education, we can add housing in there. All of them, when they're done by the state, are done incredibly poorly. Um, so, just as, as sort of evidence for, for for that problem. Right. Exactly. And conversely, you find people who can afford to obtain those goods privately do so. Uh, South Africa allows, for now, uh, people to do that. Uh, people are allowed to go to private hospitals and private schools, but there is a kind of envy that the state has 
uh, not just in South Africa, by the way, in general, states around the world, even in, in the United States, the governments don't like the private sector. They try to uh, get their piece of the action at the very least. Um, but at least you still have that option in South Africa. Unfortunately, that option is limited to very few people. And there are ways of providing health care, education, a clean environment that are better done by the private sector. In fact, in the environment, it's, you almost have to have more privatization to have a cleaner environment. Uh, I, I studied environmental science at, at Harvard. That's my first degree. And actually came to South Africa on that fellowship to study environmental science further until my interests changed and I moved into journalism and politics. But you can solve almost any environmental problem by allocating private property rights correctly. Because once people own something, they're less likely to pollute it. And, and so that might be a better way to do things privately rather than having the government responsible for maintaining a clean environment. Um, just one example, but it's just not clear that you can achieve what South Africans want to achieve if the state is the way that you have to achieve them. Yeah, well, I do think there's, there's quite a lot of um, flexibility in the Constitution, uh, especially with the court. The court says, that, you know, you have the right to access health um, ha- um, house yeah. and right. health care. You have the right to access it, and that's determined by uh, budget issues and things to that degree. But, I mean, enough about South Africa. Our listeners actually want to know about Trump um, specifically because we're the only podcast that actually talks about him in a way that I think is fair, maybe a little bit too favorably sometimes. Uh, I just like him because he's a troll. But nevertheless, you wrote a book last year, uh, I believe it was called Trump Inside the Revolution, and you, you, you know, you argued, which I haven't read by the way, because I can't find it here. Um, so you argued, um, you, you made a case for why he won. So I mean, if you had to, if you had to, to digest those points into maybe two or three different claims, why did Trump win? Because people still could understand it two years later. Well, the first and most important thing is that Trump was talking about issues that the other candidates were not talking about, and in fact, which both political parties had shunted to the margins of political discourse. And the two most prominent issues of that kind were trade and immigration. There was a consensus among the leaders of the parties in Washington that the country was committed to free trade and that when disputes arose with other nations, the United States would essentially roll over because we felt we had a duty to the rest of the world to provide a market, and if they were taking advantage of us, well, we could just absorb the cost and we'd find some way to deal with the American workers who were displaced and so on. That was the consensus. And if you had a different view, you were considered a Neanderthal troglodyte and nobody cared about you. And that was true on both sides, Republican and Democrat. There were constituencies in both parties that were skeptical of some of the free trade deals that had been done since the Clinton administration or even going back to George H.W. Bush. So really, you're talking about almost 30 years. But these were marginalized and just not discussed really in polite society. I mean, you just weren't taken seriously if you were skeptical of these trade deals. Trump realized there was a huge constituency of Americans in both parties who were being ignored, who had been displaced from jobs, who were being forced to compete unfairly with overseas industries, often industries heavily subsidized by foreign governments. So he was speaking to a massive constituency that was being purposely ignored by both parties. Likewise, on immigration, 
there are big constituencies in both the Democratic and Republican parties that are skeptical to our very generous immigration policies. We've had massive immigration over the last uh, few decades, most of it having a very positive impact on the country as a whole. But in some places, it's had a negative impact. You can look at certain industries where foreign workers are being brought in because they are cheaper than domestic workers. Uh, also, you can look at some of the cultural changes that that has brought. Uh, for example, during the Obama years, our top source of immigrants was not Mexico, actually, but Saudi Arabia. So huge numbers of Muslim immigrants coming into the country. And, you know, that's fine, uh, except in as far as more and more you're starting to see some of those immigrants not really assimilating to American culture and American society, which was the the way immigrants used to behave collectively in the past. Yes. Uh, but more and more living in enclaves, and there really still is a tension between the United States as a whole and between uh, the Islamic world as, as a whole or as an idea that hasn't been resolved in, in a couple of decades, certainly since since 9-11. There's been this unresolved tension between the idea of America and I suppose the idea of Islam, at least political Islam. And so there are a lot of clashes. For example, there was a terror attack in December 2015 near where I live in California. San Bernardino. And the, in the San, right, in San Bernardino. And the, the local leader of the most prominent uh, Islamic American organization blamed American foreign policy for the terror attack. It, it's just extraordinary that you would have people who represent the Muslim community, the largely immigrant Muslim community, blaming the country into which they wish to integrate for an attack on the citizens of that country. And, and the terrorist who, who led the attack, along with his wife, who originally was from Pakistan, he had worked in the U.S. government office, and they had left a, a Christmas party and come back and, and gunned down their colleagues. So, uh, you know, it, there's a kind of political orientation um, in some of these immigrant communities that is at odds with the mainstream of American culture and American politics. And that's been something that many Americans have felt, but which it was impolite to discuss. And Trump just cut through that political correctness and put those issues on the table. So it was because he was speaking about issues that other politicians had ignored that he was able to generate so much interest and so much enthusiasm that the media simply hadn't anticipated. So that's the first point, talking about issues that had been ignored by others. Cool. A uh, second point that is really important to understanding how Trump won is his use of the media. He was a celebrity before, so he had almost universal name recognition. But he also knew that if he relied on the media to convey his message, he would never get it to the intended audience. So he started using Twitter, and he started using speeches in a way that other candidates hadn't used speeches before. For example, he would simply stand up in front of a room of people and, and speak extemporaneously for an hour, often just giving them a kind of stream of consciousness of whatever was on his mind. And the media looked at that and thought, this man is crazy. But if you were actually in the room, it felt like he was having a personal conversation with you. He was simply speaking the way ordinary people speak with each other. And it created an intimacy between him and his audience that other politicians had no idea how to do. So he used the media, he used communication in ways that other candidates didn't. And then finally, the third point would be, he simply outworked Hillary Clinton. Once it came down to Hillary Clinton versus Trump, 
he simply worked much harder than she did. And, and whether because of age or illness or complacency, whatever the reason, she simply did not work as hard as he did. I was on a, a Trump press plane. We were the traveling journalists going around the country. And the Sunday before Election Day, we were in seven states and he did five rallies. And these states weren't close together. I mean, they were all over the place. Yeah. And Hillary Clinton, I think, did one event or two events. And if I recall, she now went she, to rest as well. Yeah, she she had to take a couple of weeks off because of a collapse uh, on September 11th. And so there were questions about her health, which are always important when you're talking about the leader of the free world. And Trump seemed much more vigorous and alive. And he, he simply worked harder. Uh, he wasn't better organized. He was outspent something like five to one. I mean, he had massive challenges against him, uh, things working against him. Uh, she had huge advantages. She had the help of the media. She had the help of Hollywood. She had the Obama administration helping her in ways both uh, public and uh, not so public, as we're finding out. And, and he still won. And he won because he worked incredibly hard. And if you look at most most political races, often that's the case. The winning candidate simply outworks the losing mm. candidate. When, when you run out of other reasons, that look at the, how hard they worked, and you'll see a big reason for the difference. Well, there's been a lot of comment about uh, the fact that uh, Hillary never went to Wisconsin, as uh, I think, if I'm not mistaken. Right, right. R Wisconsin was a key battleground in 2010, in, in 2012. It, it, it's been a really important state in the changing direction of this country with regard certainly to the role of unions in public life, for example, which is a very important political issue here. And she didn't even show up. She figured Wisconsin was in the bag, and she spent very little time in other Midwestern states, in the upper Midwest especially, the states that Trump won, the states that no Republican had won since Ronald Reagan, Wisconsin, mm. Michigan, Pennsylvania. So he looked at those states. He did the opposite of what most Republicans have done. Most Republicans say, okay, I'm going to win the conservative states. I'm not going to bother with the liberal states. So... The battle is for those 12 or so states out of the 50 the that swings. are in the middle, the swing states. Right. We're going to go to the swing states, and the key to winning the swing states is to appeal to the moderate voters. So once I win the primary by being more conservative than the other Republican candidates, I'm going to appeal to the moderates and move back to the center. Trump didn't do that. Trump said, I'm going to win the conservative states, but in order to win the election, I'm going to have to win some of the liberal states as well. And he made this sort of hyperbolic promise early in the election that he would win California and New York, which he never had any chance of doing. But you can tell that he was already thinking he had to find a way to reach into the Democratic column and pull out some of the states that the Democrats had taken for granted and add them to his column because he couldn't rely on all the swing states. And he had already, in some ways, uh, lost some of the suburban moderates. You know, his style and, and some of the issues he was talking about, yeah. um, they didn't appeal to the population that Republicans typically target when they go after moderate voters. So he knew he had to reach right into the heart of the blue-collar working class Democratic voter base and, and yank them over to the Republican side, and he did so. You mentioned something interesting in that when he talks, it's as if he's having a personal conversation with you. Uh, this was mocked roundly during the elections in that he talks at a fourth grade level or a sixth grade level and he doesn't use fancy words and all the rest of that. Um, but it's interesting to me because if you combine that with the trope of the sort of flyover states, which uh, seem to have become something that's ignored, and you take a politician who's now 
talking to people almost as if it feels like it's a one-on-one conversation um, together with someone who actually goes to those places and talks to those people. Um, that seems to be those two combined obviously had a massive effect. Right. Now, people say that he spoke at a fourth or fifth grade level or whatever. As if to say he's an idiot, uh, he doesn't know what he's doing. Mm. How can we have such a stupid person? Yeah, well, that's been the message the all, all along, yeah. Right. Well, if you look at his speeches and interviews throughout his career, he's actually very, very, very smart. He is articulate. He can speak at, at a very high level about complicated policy issues that he understands. So he's certainly capable of having the kind of intellectual conversation that makes the media all weak in the knees and everything. But he also knows how to reach out to people and make very complicated issues clear and concise and digestible. I mean, just to take an example from yesterday, he was asked by journalists as he was leaving the White House for the NATO summit, what are you going to do about all these migrant families that are separated at the border? Your administration is struggling to implement a court decision to bring them back together. How do you... Very complicated question. He said, the answer is very simple. Don't come to this country illegally. It's very simple. <laughs> Don't cross the border illegally. That's how you solve this problem. You know, and that's what Americans have been waiting to hear. Someone who cuts through all of the obfuscation. Because often intelligence is very useful in public life, but often people hide behind language and Well, you had, you had a president for eight years who, who really was brilliant as an orator. But he could talk for 20 minutes and say nothing. Right. I also like to point out that Obama was a professor at University of Chicago Law School, which is one of the most prestigious law schools in the country. And he taught constitutional law. So he fancied himself a constitutional scholar. Yet there's no president in post-war America who did more to violate the Constitution than Barack Obama. He constantly went outside the bounds of what he was allowed to do uh, and very often was shot down by the Supreme Court because he kept trying to break the rules. He did not like to work with the opposition. He's not a deal maker. He was an ideologue, basically. He was uh, very passionate about what he believed he wanted to see the country do. And when he lost elections and had to deal with the opposition, he decided to go outside the normal political process and to do things that are unconstitutional. And the United States had not seen that since Franklin Delano Roosevelt. And Trump, who is not a legal scholar, who is not a former editor of the Harvard Law Review, has been absolutely loyal to the Constitution. He's obeyed court decisions that have gone against him, whereas Obama disregarded many court decisions and the administration was threatened with contempt of court on several occasions. Uh, Trump has approached Congress to solve problems through legislation, whereas Obama's approach was to try to solve, quote-unquote, problems through executive order, essentially usurping the role of the legislature. So Trump has actually been completely loyal to the Constitution. He's not a constitutional scholar, but he has done the right thing. And I think that's what people want presidents to do, ultimately. They want presidents to make the right decisions and to govern in the best interests of the country, and that is not always the same as being the most articulate or erudite of all the candidates. So so he's been president for about, uh, what, going on? The 19, 20 months? Yeah, 19, 20 months or so. The same age as my daughter, funny enough. Um, so he's done quite a bit. 
in, in, in the amount of time that he's been in office. Um, I think he's probably the most effective president in terms of like implementation of policies, uh, whether you like them or not. I mean, that's quite something. That's is correct. It, is it, what, what will his base, when will his base drop him? What does he need to do to become really unpopular? Because he's unpopular amongst, um, I see his ratings are up. He's unpopular amongst the, you know, the, 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 the coastal cities and things like that. But people are warming up to him. Um, what is the one thing that, is he doing something that could sink him? I mean, this trade war seems a bit ridiculous in my eyes, for example. Well, he's very careful about that trade situation. Today, he tweeted from Europe that even though he's overseas, he's thinking about the American farmer and he's working to help the American farmer. Now, the American farmer is in the direct crosshairs of the foreign governments with whom we're having these trade disputes. What they're doing is they're applying tariffs selectively to industries that are politically sensitive in the United States, and they're hitting American farmers as hard as they can because Trump draws a lot of his support from agricultural states. So they're trying to hurt Trump politically. And Trump very wisely is communicating to the American farmers at any opportunity that he cares about them, that he's working to fight for them, even though they are the ones you could argue that his his current trade policy is hurting. So he's very good at, at staying in touch with all of the constituencies he needs to keep on board as he tries to reset America's trade relations with the rest of the world. What Trump could do to alienate his base would be one of two things. And I don't see him doing either of them, but this is what it would take. Um, first of all, to abandon them on a major policy promise. And the most important of those would probably be immigration. If Trump made a weak compromise with Democrats on immigration, when it's clear that Democrats want open borders, no enforcement, they want to grant amnesty to millions of people who come to the country illegally, if he made a compromise with Democrats on that that was too weak, then his base would feel betrayed. And and the one sticking issue that is still nagging at the connections that Trump built with that base is the issue of the border wall, where there's been very little progress. Now, his supporters don't blame him for that, and for very good reason. He's tried to start that wall being built, but Congress hasn't appropriated the funds. So it's really a problem of the legislature rather than of the president of the executive. So he's been given some leeway, but eventually people are going to want to know why it hasn't been done. The other thing he could do to alienate his base, and again, I think he's, he's far too smart to, to do anything like this. But if you look at what's happening in the Philippines this week, where President Duterte is on some kind of a massive trip attacking God, literally attacking God. I think he called God an idiot or something to that effect, or he challenged anyone to prove the existence of God. Um, this is President Duterte. Now, the Philippines had tolerated a lot of his rhetorical excesses, which go far beyond anything Trump has ever said, um, because he had cleaned up crime in the Philippines. My sister spent a little bit of time in Manila and said that everybody loved Duterte because before Duterte, you couldn't walk in the street at night, and now you can. He's really taken the fight to the drug leaders. So people were prepared to forgive him so many of his rhetorical excesses. But now he's attacking religion. And the Philippines is a very religious country, very religious Catholic country. So Duterte has, in a sense, gotten too big for his boots. He's decided that he himself is uh, more important than the faith of ordinary Filipinos. And 
and I think it's going to hurt him. If, if Trump ever did anything like that, if he, if he launched a kind of cultural attack on the values of, the, of the Americans, then I think he would fall precipitously in the polls. By the way, that's, that's one reason Obama was such a poor president when it came to unifying the country. One always had the sense that Obama did not like the basic values of American society, that there were things he loved about America and, and there were ways he would describe his pride in being American. But his administration really challenged basic cultural understandings among Americans from the far left. And Americans resented it. It was one of the reasons they flocked to Trump, because people resented being mm. told that the basic cultural things they held in common and had taken for granted were somehow problematic. If Trump ever did anything like what Obama did, then I think you would uh, you would see him decline. Um, but as as he's governed so far, he's tended to champion traditional American culture. I mean, one of the examples is American football. There were a series of protests, and there probably still will be again in some form. Mm, with the um, kneeling for the, for the some, anthem. Right. Players kneeling for the national anthem, ostensibly to protest against police brutality. I mean, I, we can get into a whole debate about whether the brutality is what people are saying it is and so forth. But in any case, there were players kneeling for the anthem. And Trump came out absolutely stridently against the players who were kneeling and in favor of the national anthem and the national flag. The conventional wisdom among political commentators and the media was that Trump had made a terrible mistake, that this was divisive, that people would react negatively to it. Precisely the opposite happened. The majority of Americans rallied behind Trump on that issue. And he ended up persuading the National Football League to require players at the sidelines to stand for the national anthem. If they don't want to stand for the national anthem, they have to stay in the locker rooms before the game. But the NFL basically banned players from protesting the national anthem. It doesn't mean they can't protest. They just mm. can't do it while they're at work. You know, they can, they can buy a ticket to the game and kneel in the stands. Mm. <laughs> but, well, it wasn't uh, a bad Trump, business decision either because their ratings have right. w dropped through the floorboards because I think it's really America's national sport, if, if I'm not mistaken. And, uh, and at least one of them and and uh, you know people find disrespecting the anthem which is a symbol of the country you can correct me if i'm wrong here but it's a symbol of the country just like the flag uh, and uh, that's obviously connected to veterans and people who fight for american ideals and beliefs um and they find that very disrespectful people found it disrespectful and trump was correct And he, he defended traditional American values. And, and so um, he cemented his relationship with his base and he keeps doing that. So I don't think he's going to do either of those two things mm. that I mentioned. And he – look, you said earlier that people on both sides, whether you like him or not, you have to agree that he's basically done what he promised to do. And there was an early poll about a year ago that showed exactly that, that the one thing Democrats and Republicans agreed on when it came to Trump, was that he <laughs> was doing what he said he was going to do. They didn't, the Democrats didn't like what he was doing, but they agreed, according to this poll, that he had at least done what he said he was going to do. And that's fairly unique. I mean, most presidents don't do what they say mm. they were going to do. Most presidents break their campaign promises, and he has been uh, quite loyal to the commitments he made on the campaign trail. And even though You know, you can disagree with some of those policies. I mean, I disagree with his tariff policy, but you can play over and over again the video 
of him telling voters in 2016, I'm going to raise tariffs on China. I'm, you know, over and over again. So, you know, he's a, he, he didn't, it shouldn't be a surprise. He's doing amazingly exactly what he said he would do. Yeah. So I want to talk a little bit about the reaction to Trump. You know, the other day he tweeted out a video, which I'd, I'd actually seen before that, um, essentially shows, uh, it's a, it's about a three minute clip of the chaos that starts with, um, every pundit from Joy Behar to, you know, to Hillary Clinton, to <laughs> Nancy Pelosi, uh, saying Trump will never be president. This is a joke. Um, essentially laughing at him, openly laughing at him. I, I, I still think the theory that he decided he was going to run for president at the White House, White House, um, press dinner is, is probably once he was mocked by Obama in front of everyone, he's, he's, <laughs> right. it probably holds a little bit of water. Um, so, so, and then it obviously goes through it and, and uh, they used uh, the young Turks uh, with, uh, uh, Hugo, uh, losing his mind as, as Donald Trump sort of takes, right. the, takes the presidency, wins all the electoral college votes. Um, and ever since then, things have been insane. I, I mean, I think things have been insane since the time he said he, said he was going to run, which is three years ago now. Um, I, I remember, hearing that Donald Trump had, had, had given the speech that he was going to run for the presidency um, and that he had said that all Mexicans are rapists. And I thought to myself at the time, I had no opinion really on the guy. Um, I, I just thought, yeah, he's that celebrity on Apprentice, you know, the Apprentice, whatever. Um, and I thought that's a weird thing to say. Really? Did he say that? And I went and looked, actually got picked up the clip and realized that's not what he said. Um, but right. ever since then, the media has been misrepresenting him. But we really went into like, hyper speed um, after the election. Um, fake news was essentially a, a, a term championed by CNN, I think, five days after he won the election. Um, they, they then, you know, MSNBC, everyone else picked up on it and pushed fake news, and then he used their term against them. Um, right. We've seen this sort of what is essentially a, a legitimate psychiatric condition, Trump derangement syndrome, uh, people reacting completely irrationally to the man. Uh, you know, he's literally Hitler and he's going to, you know, take away all of women's rights and he's going to put gays in, in concentration camps. And this is just like Japanese internment. And I, I, right. the list goes on and on and on. Uh, I mean, I think yourself as a as a <laughs> relatively observant Jew have, have basically been called a Nazi. So, you know, other people <laughs> like Ben Shapiro have also had that thrown at them. Um, <laughs> you know, it, 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 everything's insane, really. Um, and... I'm just, I'm just wondering if, cause my attitude is if you don't like Trump, the way to actually defeat him is just to be honest. So credit him with the things he does okay at or well at, and then criticize him hard on the things you think he's doing wrong. But inevitably it's always a hundred percent criticism and it's hyperbole all the time. What's your view on all of this? Right. Well, what's interesting you know, you look at the video that you're describing. We have all these Democratic politicians and pundits saying Trump will never win. And those videos are very entertaining. There's one unfortunate thing about the video, which is what they, they, lump, they lump all of these politicians and people together. Uh, after the election, not every one of them behaved the same way. And if you look at Bernie Sanders, who's on the far left, and you look at other politicians on the far left, the far left had an easier time adjusting to the Trump presidency than the center-left did. The far-left was just as smug 
about Trump's prospects as the center left. But mm. once the election was over, they realized why he had won. They realized he had essentially stolen their issues, that he had led the critique on trade, that he had spoken directly to working class voters about their interests. He had essentially taken their voters. And so they understood why he had won. Because they had been arguing for decades that if a politician would simply take up these issues, they would win. And Trump showed that they were correct, even though he is a Republican and won for the other side, so to speak. So the far left actually had less trouble adjusting to the Trump presidency, and they've done very, very well politically on the ground. Much of the debate lately has been about the rise of these far left-wing candidates challenging Democrats in, in New York and other places, and some of these new candidates have become celebrities in their own right, and they are dragging the Democratic Party to the left. But the reason they've been able to succeed is that they retained their wits, and they were able to respond productively to the surprise of Trump's victory by organizing, by developing their own networks, by innovating, by reaching out to voters, by doing what you expect politicians to do. The center left has completely lost its mind. And the reason the center left lost its mind was they had no template to explain Trump's victory. They didn't care about workers. They didn't care about the rest of the country. They were essentially a governing elite. The Clinton machine ran the Democratic Party and was used to the idea that it was entitled to run the country. Even Obama, who defeated the Clinton machine politically, still absorbed it into his administration because he himself did not have a lot of experience. He wasn't surrounded by people who knew how to govern anything. So the Clintons basically provided the machinery for Obama to govern, even though he provided the direction. And he, and, and he led. He made independent decisions. He made, he made decisions the Clintons on their own wouldn't have made. But he still relied on the entire universe of people and institutions that they had built up over the years. So the center left, which is what the Clintons represented, were just used to the idea that they would govern. They felt entitled to rule. And they had no ideological content, really, um, other than, you know, they would sort of borrow far-left ideas. I mean, many of them were just sort of reformed radicals or upwardly mobile radicals themselves. But in terms of the way they operated politically, they, they simply functioned as a governing elite. And Trump displaced them. And they have been in absolute freefall ever since then. Because he, he's displacing them every day. Uh, the policies he's undertaken have removed power from the Washington elite, from Hollywood and the media, and has returned that power to individuals, to the rest of the country. That's the essence of his administration's mission. If you look at his inaugural address, that's what he said he was going to do. And so every day is a panic for them because they don't actually have ideas. They just have their position. And one of the other things that they've really done that has hurt them is they've bought into all these conspiracy theories about how he won, Absolutely. you know, the Russians had to do it or, or whatever. And they've convinced themselves that he is about to be kicked out of office. And they believe that every day could be the day that he leaves, that he's forced to resign. And so they've, they've subjected themselves to this kind of daily torture of having that expectation dashed. So when he does ordinary things like appointing a justice to the Supreme Court, yes, it's a very important thing. It's always controversial, but 
you know, that's what presidents do. He's just carrying out the office. That becomes an occasion for renewed panic all over again. And it's because they haven't adjusted to the Trump presidency. They haven't, in effect, grieved the loss of 2016. They have not come to terms with it and picked themselves up and learned to find a way forward. The far left is doing better. Um, by the way, that's going to help Trump as well, because the country as a whole does not like the ideas of the far left. So the, the further left the Democratic Party moves, the better it is for Trump. Um, but as far as South African perceptions of Trump, you know, I think there are two major problems that South Africa has that explain most, maybe not all, but most of the misunderstanding. One is just a, a difference in political culture. South Africa has has many wonderful political attributes, and I don't want to downplay the significance of the South African miracle in terms of the transition from apartheid to democracy. Very, very important and still very inspiring. But South Africa is the only country in the world where the communists won the Cold War. That is to say, the Soviet Union collapsed, and then apartheid collapsed a few months later, and the governing party that benefited from that was basically a communist party, or at least in coalition with, with explicit communists. Yeah. And the lesson that South Africa drew from that was that communism won. I mean, they know essentially that the, the Soviet Union doesn't exist anymore and, and communism lost in a geopolitical sense. But the country's governing elite and its media elite, very, very importantly, uh, were in a left-wing activist mode for their entire adult lives. And then they saw the change they had been working for and they took power. And so they fell victims to the classic economic fallacy, you know, post hoc ergo propter hoc. And if it happened after, then it must have been caused by that previous event. So, you know, the, the lesson is that communism produces victory. And so South Africa is naturally, I think, uh, politically disinclined to like Republican administrations. I think South Africans uh, have drawn different lessons from the history of the past 30 or 40 years. And so there's a natural orientation that will cause South Africans to interpret events in the United States differently. But there's also a big problem in South Africa, which is the fact that South Africans are exposed, overexposed to CNN. The <laughs> major source. No, I, I, I'm, I'm not kidding. I, I'm actually being dead serious. Sure. I CNN think is, not only, is, is the yes. major source of international news. Yeah, I mean, C CNN is, is the major American export when it comes to mm. news. And people don't understand when they live overseas and watch CNN that CNN at the moment occupies a far left-wing space on the American political spectrum. It is not representative of the consensus or uh, the midpoint of American political opinion. It is radically anti-Trump. They have some Republicans on there, but the Republicans on CNN also hate Trump. Hmm. Anna Navarro so, is an example. Right, right. I mean, she's a former Jeb Bush uh, yeah. staffer she, she, she's or consultant also or whatever. Yeah, so Currently. what you get in South Africa and other countries is this debate where the Democrats and the Republicans are arguing with each other on CNN about how bad Trump really is. I mean, nobody really comes on to defend Trump or his policies or to explain them. And the journalists describe Trump with this kind of dripping contempt. And so they encourage the rest of the world to see Trump the same way. And CNN is a huge problem. They don't take their mission as an international news source seriously at all. I don't believe that media organizations should have to defend 
the government, quite the opposite, they should challenge the government. But I think media organizations also have to be mindful of their audience. And what CNN is providing its audience is a very, very skewed picture of what political life is like inside the United States. That's quite observant of you. Um, yeah, the fact that the ANC thinks communism won despite the fact communism fell. Um, all right, yeah, well, we'll use that going forward. So the last question from me, Joel. Trump as a cultural figure, what do you think will happen? I mean, he'll win in 2020 based on um, current, current precedent and current trajectory. Um, as a political and cultural figure, what will he do, do you think, to the political landscape? In America, do you think the Republican Party will become not more traditional because Trump is not really traditional? But do you think the Republican Party will be less elite focused, less technocratically focused? Um, what do you think his his influence will be once he leaves office, and you know, ten years later, do you think he'll be like a Margaret Thatcher, Margaret Thatcher kind of influence, or will it be just a blip on the radar, and then things will go back to the usual the usual <laughs> political mischief? You know, I, I think things will probably return to the way they were before. Uh, I don't know that it will have a long-term impact on the ideological alignment of the parties. Right now, we see the two parties splitting more intensely than before. You do see more working-class voters coming over to the Republican Party. But to some extent, that had started to happen even before Trump because of the issues that Republicans had started to talk about. And also, frankly, because the Democratic Party was already moving left and alienating some of those workers. So if anything, Trump has accelerated that process. You might see Republicans more mindful of his appeal to ordinary people, which Republicans weren't so good at before. So perhaps the Republican Party is improving. But Democrats will eventually learn as well. And, and I think politics will always be contentious, maybe not as divided as it is today, but it will always be contentious and the parties will basically go back to where they were. The most important thing that this era will be remembered for is, is the fact that at this particular point in history where America really had a choice, where things really could have changed. I mean, if Hillary Clinton had won, for example, you would see liberal judges appointed who would have interpreted our constitution very, very differently. And they would have been on the court's for lifetime, because our mm. federal judges serve serve for life, uh, they would have changed the American system to look much more like the South African system, which many uh, judges on the left actually admire in the United States. They they like the idea of socioeconomic rights. They would have found a way to interpret American law such that socioeconomic rights became part of the system of legal precedence, even mm. though it was, it's not in our constitution. America would have moved decisively to the left. In the same way that it moved decisively to the left during Roosevelt, I mean, during the New Deal in the Depression, yeah. when the courts began to move to the left, there's never been a real challenge to the New Deal since then. Yeah, and it, it extended the, the Great Depression by, I think, six or eight years. Yeah, you can argue that, that, that the policies were terrible and so forth. But the fact is that even Ronald Reagan, who was the most conservative president on, until that point in history, did not challenge the New Deal. And in fact, you, there's a new, great new book out arguing that Reagan actually liked Roosevelt and liked the New Deal. Uh, that We were at a similar point after Barack Obama, where the United States really would have shifted decisively in a left-wing direction that, that few would have questioned. And I, I really do think American politics would have looked a lot more like South African politics uh, if Hillary Clinton had won. 
where the left-wing view of the world became the consensus view, and views outside of that consensus would be challenged as racist and so forth. By the way, that happens anyway, but right now it just happens at college campuses and happens on CNN. You know, it, it only happens in pockets of American society, and, and Trump prevented that from taking over the whole of American society. He basically defended the classical American idea of the liberty of the individual and the uh, limitations of the government. And, and that, that I think, will last. It was, mm. it was a point in history where America really had a decisive choice to make. And I think that Trump's presidency has protected the idea of America for a generation or two. Okay, so last thing from me is, you know, based on the um, news we, we get here, certainly uh, your point about CNN is taken, um, and also the insanity that happens on Twitter uh, in terms of all the stuff that's going on about Trump. I mean, you, Americans have died three times over now. You you, were, you, <laughs> right. you all died when Gorsuch was, was uh, confirmed. You all died <laughs> right. when net neutrality was repealed, and you all died um, – when uh oh, there was there was another incident when he um, tweeted rocket man uh, yes I, I think that was well there's been a few when the, the the entire american population would be killed by this i mean that was literally said by people about net neutrality right. you know um this is the kind of irrational stuff we're talking about um you know and now we've got him nominating brett Kavanaugh, who is quite Actually, I mean, he's on the right, but he's moderate right. Um, I don't think he's going to shift the court. I don't think anything's going to happen to Roe versus Wade. I don't think it really matters when it, whether, I mean, most people don't know enough, but I don't think it matters whether much happens to Roe versus Wade because it's not like liberal states are ever going to ban abortion. It's, it's as simple as that. Right. And if, if it goes down to states' rights, all that would happen is some states it would be legal and others it wouldn't. Um, right. But, but, What's it like to live daily in the United States? Because I think a lot of your compatriots don't realize they live in one of the greatest countries on earth, if not the greatest ever. In terms of daily life, not much has changed. Yep. I mean, I went to a baseball game last week, and you don't even think about politics at a baseball game. I, I interact with neighbors who have very different political views from mine. You know, I like to joke, I live in a building with a lot of people, and you know, people are quite tolerant. They allow both views to be represented. There are people who voted for Hillary and there are people who voted for Bernie. And, you know, we, we respect everyone's views. Um, you know, <laughs> I'm one of the rare Trump supporters uh, in, in Los Angeles. But for the most part, when you're dealing with practical matters in everyday life, things haven't changed that much. The politics of the country have changed a lot. And if you talk about politics, it is... Uh, very difficult. Uh, but for the most part, life has continued as usual. And the only difference is whether you're enjoying it or not. And I, I think that um, those who expected Trump to lose and those who expected him to resign at any day, at any point, I think they're very unhappy. They're living, in a sense, through a nightmare that's partly of their own creation. Mostly, the country's doing extremely well. Opinion polls tell us that the general public have a more positive outlook on the future than they have for decades. The manufacturing job base has been restored. The employment figures are unbelievably good. The economy is growing very, very rapidly. And something like 55% of Americans believe the future will be better than the present, whereas that number in 2012 under Obama was something like 47%. So the country actually is more optimistic 
when it comes down to sort of bread and butter issues. When you get into politics, people have very emotional reactions. But what it's like to live here is it's actually fantastic. Hmm. And yeah. I was growing up during the 1980s and 1990s, so I don't have the clearest memories. But I do remember those years as being very hopeful and exciting. And I told my wife, who's born and raised in Cape Town and has been in the United States for about a decade and a half, I, I said to her at some point last year or the year before, it's starting to feel like something I recognize from two or three decades ago, that this is what the country felt like. It wasn't always worried about the future the yeah. way it was after September 11th and through the Obama years. There's a sense of optimism that I recognize from my childhood that has been restored. And, and that's very largely because of Trump. It's not only because of Trump. It's mostly because people do it for themselves. If you give people the opportunity to yeah. invest, to take risks, to do better for themselves, then they do create a better world. But Trump has certainly known how to encourage that. And it's starting to feel, for lack of a better term, it's starting to feel like America again. And, and that's really a good feeling despite all of the anxiety and hand-wringing on CNN. Joel, thank you very, very much. I uh, really appreciate you giving us your time uh, and uh, coming on and giving that side of the story because uh, it's, it's, it's not one we can get in South Africa. And certainly we get a lot of criticism for uh, being positive on Trump on certain issues. So really I do appreciate you coming on and, 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 and being part of the show. Thanks so much. And if you ever are in the country, uh, yeah, come join us. Not all of us are crazy commies. <laughs> There's quite a few, of, <laughs> yeah, quite a few yeah. of us who aren't, actually. We just need a political yeah, party to uh, present that platform to us, which might be happening sooner rather than later. Who right. knows? Okay. <laughs> yeah. Right. Thanks so much, and thank, we'll, uh, thank we'll, you. we'll chat to you soon. All right. Talk soon. Cheers, man. Bye-bye. Right. If you enjoyed uh, that podcast, you can obviously – uh, follow us on Twitter at Renegade underscore report. You can find us on Facebook, both the page and the group where we have discussions about the podcasts. Um, and if you enjoyed the show so much that you'd like to give us your money, uh, then you can find us on Patreon. We appreciate all the donations. The show is self-funded. Thanks so much for listening. Cheers. Bye. This is cliffcentral.com.